calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is of gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of our Take 15 webcast series. I'm Rob Gowan, Director of Member Products at CFA Institute, and joining me today is Eric Grenade, Chief Investment Officer of Invesco Global Strategies. Eric is primarily responsible for the international and global equity portfolios. Eric, thanks a lot for joining us today. And just to start things off, uh, we all know that there's been a significant rebound in the equity markets globally of late. So could you help us understand perhaps what's behind that and, and what we can learn from that and what that's telling the market? Absolutely. And Rob, it's a pleasure to be here uh, with your program. We have seen, in fact, one of the sharpest rallies in global equity markets in about 70 years uh, across the world. Uh, share prices are up 40% plus. That's very unusual for a three-month period. There's no question we had gotten to a point of despair uh, in capital markets late in 2008 and early in 2009 with the financial crisis, failing uh, institutions, uh, and tremendous concern about leverage uh, and housing markets. What's happened is a pretty effective and unusual uh, coordinated intervention by uh, central banks worldwide to stimulate uh, the economy and inject enormous amounts of liquidity. Uh, the U.S. Fed has led this charge and has, in addition to lowering interest rates to essentially zero, uh, has led the charge with uh, quantitative easing as well, and that is specifically buying securities increasing the balance sheet of the Fed uh, with a desire uh, and goal uh, to increase the money supply and liquidity in markets. Investors have responded very, very favorably to that. Uh, and let's not forget that we started uh, at a very, very low level in valuations. Uh, at that time, uh, at the bottom uh, in March of this year, uh, non-U.S. equity markets as a whole traded at one times book value. That's the lowest level that we've seen uh, really since the inception uh, of the non-U.S. indices back in 1970. Now, you mentioned financials. Here in the U.S., there's obviously been a big focus on getting the balance sheets uh, a lot more healthy. Uh, can you comment on efforts that have been made over in Europe and Japan to do the same? Yes. Really, the, the uh, overuse of leverage in financial institutions has been one of the biggest problems uh, facing both policymakers uh, as well as corporations and investors. The U.S. Uh, has been as involved with this as non-U.S. financial institutions. They have a somewhat easier ability to raise capital simply from a logistical point of view. Uh, we remain here in the U.S., the world's largest capital market. Uh, when a major U.S. Uh, entity wants to raise uh, equity funds or debt capital, they can uh, potentially do that uh, here purely in the home market. Most major financial institutions abroad like to have 
uh, a global uh, basis for uh, raising capital. And that creates issues like different regulations for uh, selling debt or equity securities. It involves logistics, traveling, uh, meeting with a broader array of investors, uh, and sometimes very technical reg uh, regulations as to uh, when you offer a transaction and when it begins to trade. So we do think given uh, the tremendous backdrop that we've seen in equity markets in the past few months, that's really greased the skids uh, for all uh, financial institutions. U.S. companies have gotten off to a slightly faster start, uh, but make no mistake, uh, companies both in Europe and Asia uh, are also benefiting from the same backdrop. Now let's talk for a second about valuation. Now, we went through a period of uh, extreme leverage uh, that financial institutions were bearing, and now that we're seeing a deleveraging, clearly that's a, uh, uh, a headwind uh, against equity values, and so do you see the deleveraging uh, as a permanent uh, solution to helping financial markets? And also, what does that do to valuations and what does that do to stock returns in, in particular? Really, deleveraging is a, a notion that affects not just financial institutions, it very much is front and center for consumers, but it's also an issue for governments. Uh, governments are uh, now taking on enormous amounts of debt uh, to support uh, their economies and the capital markets, and that uh, debt will have to be paid back as well. We do believe that for financial institutions, tremendous progress has been made both domestically and abroad. And we've needed the healthy uh, market backdrop to get that off. We've needed the stress tests uh, from uh, the U.S. government. We've needed the willingness of the government to permit payback of TARP funds. Uh, I guess 10 uh, financial institutions uh, have been able to do that now. But those uh, deleveraging efforts are much longer term, certainly for the consumer. Uh, we have a long, slow workout uh, for the consumer in that regard. And with uh, unemployment uh, approaching 10% uh, here in the U.S. and with pressure uh, on the biggest asset for most consumers, their house, um, we think it's going to be tough for uh, the savings rate to increase. Uh, and it's going to be a very important uh, influence on the economy as uh, consumption uh, and our tendency to uh, consume beyond our means, uh, both here uh, and abroad, uh, that will have a real effect on economic growth over time. Well, let's take that U.S. consumer for a second. Uh, clearly, the U.S. consumer is the dominant force in GDP domestically. Um, but what's your view of the U.S. consumer and how it affects your view when you manage equities across the globe? Well, the U.S. Uh, rate of personal consumption as a percentage of GDP has been on a steady rise for decades, and it's at peak levels right now, just over 70%. That's actually the highest level of any of the major economies in the world with sort of peak levels more in the 60 to 65% elsewhere. But in countries like China, uh, one of the most rapidly growing and most important economies in the world, uh, consumption is only about 40% uh, of GDP. Um, this is not just a domestic uh, issue, however, because of the U.S.'s role uh, in the global economy. So uh, as we talk about valuations of equities globally, uh, what the U.S. consumer is doing is very interrelated. And so one of the reasons, uh, for example, the Japanese uh, stock market is as cheap as it is today is because the domestic economy uh, has really been uh, growing at a 
very, very slow and below trend rate uh, for a couple of decades now. Almost all uh, of the growth in GDP uh, from Japan uh, at the margin has come from export demand, and there's a pretty direct link, if at times, through a few intermediaries uh, right to that U.S. consumer. So it does play a major role uh, in uh, global uh, GDP. Uh, We think it could be as much as 15 to 20 percent. I read in one of your recent market commentaries that you felt that valuations in uh, Europe and Japan, speaking of uh, the valuation in Japan related to that uh, level of consumer spending, uh, are lower than the U.S. and potentially more attractive opportunities. Is, is the lower valuations over there uh, a, a temporary issue, or is there some sort of secular inter-regional uh, uh, valuation difference that, that the U.S. You know, may have a valuation premium uh, for the foreseeable future? Rob, there, there, there are a couple of issues there. One uh, we would think of as, as a legacy. Uh, the other is very much a function of fundamentals, because in the end, Uh, Stock prices are driven by the demonstrated fundamentals of the underlying issuer. Uh, That's true uh, worldwide. It's certainly true uh, here in the U.S. The legacy is that the equity culture in the United States is more developed than any other place in the world. Uh, That gives the investor staying power and gives the investor a willingness to ride out uh, volatility that at times can be very, very daunting. Uh, In other parts of the world, Uh, there's a much shorter time horizon. And when equity returns are very attractive, uh, there can be much greater interest uh, in equity uh, investments as a whole. Uh, The equity culture not being as established means uh, when times are challenging, uh, times of recession, uh, times of below market uh, types of returns that people have come to expect, Uh, people tend to shift uh, asset allocation elsewhere. So there is uh, a legacy issue that we think favors uh, the U.S. uh, and the U.S. capital markets. That is clearly a function of uh, premium stock prices. There's also an element of um, fundamentals. Uh, There are parts of the world's economy and capital markets that are very clearly driven uh, and dominated by U.S. companies. Let's take the technology sector, for example. Very few people would argue that the world's best technology companies, whether it be in software, semiconductors, hardware equipment, uh, are based here uh, in the U.S. And so if you look at the indices uh, in the U.S. market, technology is a substantially higher uh, component of the U.S. market than what you see in uh, the IFA index, the non-U.S. Uh, index. And this is a growth area of the market. It's an area of the market where people tend to uh, pay up for that higher growth. And so we think that's a justifiable difference. But on average, uh, there are a lot more similarities today than there are differences uh, in issuers. Uh, with our uh, investment strategy, we take a global sector-based approach to research, and we're looking for the best companies that offer the types of financial attributes that we favor, but also uh, with the best value. And uh, in most areas of the market, not all, uh, there is not so much a direct correlation between uh, higher prices and higher justified prices based on a domicile. I'd like to shift the conversation a little bit towards risk. You know, a lot of components to risk, but um, clearly, One of the thoughts about investing globally versus just in one country is uh, diversification. 
uh, over the past uh, market downturn, you know, before before this recent uh, uh, up market, we saw a tremendous correlation across the globe in equity returns. And so, uh, if you could just share your view on global diversification and that unfortunate incident when when you need diversification the most, it seems to uh, not be there. Rob, that's a, a certainly a very interesting uh, perspective. We've done a lot of work on. Uh, correlations across different regions and components of the equity markets and we have found a few things uh, very clearly. Number one, there is a secular increase uh, in correlations that is purely a function of globalization. Globalization in the economy, uh, globalization in capital markets. Having said that, the correlations also continue to be very cyclical. So uh, if you have a systemic shock like we've seen uh, over the past 18 months with the financial crisis where over leverage, uh, exposure to uh, impaired assets uh, is something that influences companies worldwide, uh, has clearly has been shown, uh, you're going to have in the short run pretty high correlation. So for example, over the past year or so, developed non-US markets have had about an 85% correlation uh, with the S&P 500. Uh, even emerging markets uh, have had about 80% correlation. But the interesting thing to us is that even in the recent past, uh, those correlation levels have been substantially lower. Uh, Non-U.S. developed markets have had as low as 60% correlation uh, with the S&P 500, and emerging markets even lower uh, at about 50. So when you have a truly global systemic issue, correlations in the short run uh, should be expected to rise. But over the long run, uh, diversification, in our view, is one of the very scarce uh, components of good investment strategy that provide uh, a basis for uh, enhancing returns, uh, potentially at various points in time, but uh, spreading that risk uh, across more asset classes with less than perfect correlation, meaning the risk taken to potentially enhance uh, those returns is uh, very much controlled. So we're very much of the view that that long-term diversification pays, uh, that the benefits will not be seen today uh, or tomorrow, and most certainly not uh, exclusively in periods of crisis or systemic uh, disruption, but uh, five years from now, 10 years from now, uh, the various components of global investing, including capitalization, uh, risk, currency denomination, uh, classification of security, domicile, industry, sector, uh, all of these things, uh, if incorporated into a broad and well thought through investment strategy, are very likely uh, to pay off for the typical investor. Risk, guys, running a global fund is you run into currency issues. Now, clearly, with a lot of the stimulus activity that's happening, uh, many think that the risk of inflation increases and when you're a global equity manager clearly the the currency factor uh, grows uh, with that as well so uh, how do you look at inflation across the globe in various locations and and how do you manage that currency risk the first thing we would certainly say is uh, we've been very pleased with the success of the stimulus and bailout provisions not just by the US Fed but globally and, and certainly the the Uh, The degree to which equity markets have responded favorably has probably been a pleasant surprise for most uh, observers. Make no mistake, however, the basic approach that the U.S. Fed has taken, printing money 
to provide liquidity into the financial system very clearly has an inflationary bias, as you describe. When you increase the supply of a commodity and there is no change uh, in demand, the price must fall. And that is a risk longer term for uh, both currency values, but also the yield on Treasury uh, securities. And, and that has direct uh, impact on other factors that drive uh, the U.S. economy. Most recently, uh, the rate on mortgage securities. So, for example, a 30-year Fannie Mae security has uh, risen dramatically uh, in yield uh, just in the past uh, month or so to well in excess of 5%. Uh, this is part of the main objective of the U.S. government to reduce the financing costs for homeowners uh, here in the U.S. All of these things uh, are related not just to currency, the economies as well, but ultimately we believe uh, there are components of the non-U.S. equity markets that are underpinned by currencies with very strong fundamentals that over time may continue to appreciate against the U.S. dollar uh, that could enhance the returns for certainly investors based here uh, in the U.S. All that having been said, however, uh, we have had, uh, as we discussed earlier, such a strong rebound uh, in global equity markets if we found ourselves taking a breather, uh, if some of the underlying concerns about consumer debt uh, or the housing market or, worst of all, deflation uh, were to return, uh, it's quite likely that the dollar could actually recover uh, due to its safe haven uh, status. And that's certainly what happened uh, late last year uh, and into the early part of this year. Well, Eric, thanks a lot for joining us today. We really appreciate your insights. And thank you for watching this episode of Take 15. For more information, please visit us at cfawebcasts.org. Copyright 2009, CFA Institute. No part may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, electronic, mechanical, recording, or otherwise, without the express prior written permission of CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.